The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is from Genesis 15, verses 1 through 16. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years." But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The word of God for the people of God. Hey friends, my name is Bob. I am one of the pastors here. Sometimes I think about this. If I had one sermon to preach, if you were only here one Sunday and you were only going to hear me say one thing, um, what would I want to say? What would I say to you? Uh, And essentially, I think it would be something along these lines. Listen, you're going to live for something. You're going to give your life to something. You're either going to live for yourself or you're going to live for God and for others. And so the invitation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to die to self and to live for God and for others. That's what Jesus makes possible possible through his life, death, and resurrection, and it's what you were made to do. Or to say it another way, you were made to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, and you won't find happiness or satisfaction, or meaning, or purpose, or significance anywhere else in the world until you find your way back 
into that kingdom which you were made for. And, and that's kind of what we're saying in this preaching series. We're taking seven weeks to look at this biblical theme of the kingdom of God. What does the Bible say about the kingdom of God? And it really gets to the heart of what God wants us to know about who he is and what it means to know him in the world. And so the first week we started out looking at the priority of God's kingdom, that this is what the whole Bible is about. We just tried to say, if you look at what Jesus cared about, what the apostles cared about, what the authors of scripture cared about, what the whole thing is about, you could summarize it by saying the Bible is about the kingdom of God. This is the priority of God's kingdom. And then last week, Pastor Justin spoke about the pattern of God's kingdom. God's people in God's place, under God's rule. This is how the Bible begins, and it's the pattern that is established that the, the journey of the Scriptures are always pointing us back to, that we are made to be God's people in God's place, under God's rule. So this week, sticking with the P words, we're going to talk about the principle of God's kingdom, right? What's the operative principle? What's the foundational premise of the kingdom of God. Some of you don't know this about me, but I'm a, I'm a little bit of a gearhead. I'm a car person, especially when I was younger. That's true. The older I've gotten, now I just want cars that don't break down because I have to have a lot of them because my kids are older and there's always something breaking. So I've sort of defaulted toward cars that don't break down. But when I was younger, perhaps more naive with more kinds of disposable income, I loved having cars and working on cars, and fixing cars, and spending money on cars. And when I turned 15, um, I asked my dad if for my 15th birthday, he would go in with me and buy this old classic Chevy pickup truck that we could just sort of like spend some time fixing up and working on. And so that's what I got for my 15th birthday, and it took me most of the rest of my teenage years to get it running. And functional, I brought a photo of it. Here's what it looked like when we were done. Not bad, right? Pretty decent looking truck. It didn't look like that when we first got it. And so over the course of my high school career, we built the engine, built the transmission, built the drivetrain, did all the work to sort of restore and recondition this truck. And I learned a whole lot about mechanical stuff and about problem solving. And I, I'll never forget, as we were working on the engine, which was a lot simpler, than most engines are now, but the engine in your car still runs on the same basic principles. Um, my dad would always say, son, it's called an internal combustion engine for a reason, because the operating principle of an engine is combustion. And in order to have combustion, you need three things, air, fuel, and spark. All three of those things have to be present for there to be combustion, for there to be an explosion in the engine that produces power. So all your problems always come back to no air, no fuel, or no spark. Now, there are whole systems in every car that make those things possible. There's a system that delivers air to the engine, there's a system that delivers fuel to the engine, and there's a system that delivers spark to the engine, and it could be anything in any one of those systems that is awry, but when it comes down to it, one of three things is going to be your problem, air, fuel, or spark. That was very helpful because it takes something super complex and actually brings us down to the foundational principle. What is it that makes an internal combustion engine work? It's air, fuel, spark. In anything in life, whether you're talking about cars, 
whether you're talking about the human body or whether you're talking about the kingdom of God, it's always helpful to know what are the foundational principles that lie at the heart of this, that it all comes down to one or two things. And so that's what we want to think about this morning. What's the operative principle? What's the foundational premise of the kingdom of God? So here's what I want to do. I want to give you the answer to that question. I want to show you the answer. And then I want us to explore some of the implications of the answer. So that's where we're headed this morning. I'm going to give you the answer, show you the answer, and talk about the implications of the answer. So, so just right up front, I'm going to tell you where we're going. Here's what the sermon is about. Here's what we're going to talk about for the next 30 minutes or so. Here's what the operative principle of the kingdom of God is. It's grace. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace. When it all comes down to it, God's kingdom is a kingdom of unmerited favor, undeserved kindness. Grace is the currency of the kingdom of God. And that is both wonderful and powerful, and also it is totally upside down from everything we expect and everything that we're used to. The kingdom of this world runs on the currency of performance, of earning, of merit. And you've been trained to use that currency since your earliest days. If you want to make the team, you've got to earn your spot. If you want to go to college, you've got to achieve a certain GPA or score well on the entrance exam. If you want to get that job, you've got to have an impressive resume and perform well in the interviews. In every facet of life, you've been learning how to perform and demonstrate that you fit from your earliest days. And sometimes, even the relationships in life that aren't supposed to be driven by performance are. So some of you grew up in families where you had to perform to earn love and affection and approval. Some of you had friends whose approval of you depended on your performance. For some of you, the person you're trying so hard to please is actually you. You should have really high standards for yourself. And no matter how good you do, it's never quite good enough. You and I have been performing our whole lives, trying to be good enough, smart enough, credible enough, beautiful enough, intelligent enough, accomplished enough to earn your way into the places and relationships you want to be in. Always asking the question, am I doing well enough? Here's what I want you to hear this morning. This is freeing news. This is powerful news. It's simple news, but it changes everything. The kingdom of God doesn't work like that. That currency doesn't have any value here. You can't spend that money in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of unmerited favor. It is a kingdom for those who don't measure up and can't measure up. For those who don't have what it takes. For those who haven't earned their spot. In fact, the only way into this kingdom is to acknowledge your lack and your need and your poverty and your inability. 
the operative principle of the kingdom of God is grace. And it's one thing to know that and to say that, and another thing for that to sink in deeply enough that it actually begins to change how we relate to God and one another. And that's, by God's grace, what I'm praying He does in some small measure this morning. So now that I've given you the answer, told you that the operative principle of the kingdom of God is grace, let me now show you the answer. Open your Bibles to Genesis 15, the passage that we just heard read. And if you've been around for about six months, you might remember that I just preached on this passage last October, which isn't that long ago. So it should be rather fresh in your memory. And you might be asking, why are we preaching again on this same passage? Well, here's why. Because I know that probably if you know a little bit about your Bible or a little bit about the Christian faith or a little bit of theology enough to be dangerous, you could say we're saved by grace, not works. Like you probably know grace is a big thing. Grace, not works. The book of Romans talks about this. The New Testament talks about this. It's not surprising that that grace is at the heart of the gospel. And usually when we think of grace, we think about passages in the New Testament that really emphasize that we're saved by grace. But what I want you to see is that grace has been the foundation of God's relationship with his people since the very beginning. Like we don't have to get to the New Testament to suddenly learn about grace. Grace has been here since the beginning of God's dealings with his people. And so we're going to go back right here to Genesis 15 and to God's covenant relationship with Abraham because it establishes this foundational principle of grace, that this is how God relates to his people. Now, this passage is important because Abraham is an archetypal figure in Scripture. The rest of the Bible always looks back to Abraham as establishing the foundational premise of how God relates to his people. And so as you're sort of landing in Genesis 15, listen to these other biblical texts, which all remind us how important a figure Abraham is. Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses speaking to God's people. He says, you are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers to... When I point at you, that's when you read the word on the screen, okay? To Abraham, good, okay. So Moses says, hey... I'm making a a covenant with you today. God's going to be your God. You're going to be his people just like he promised to Abraham. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 13. This is later on in the Old Testament story. We read this. Now, Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham. Micah chapter 7, the minor prophets. We're getting toward the end of the Old Testament now. Micah says this, Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And then finally, one representative New Testament passage, Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26, we read this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. The whole Bible looks back to God's relationship with Abraham as laying the foundation for how God relates to his people and how his kingdom works. So what is the principle? What is the foundation of God's relationship with Abraham? Let's look at the text. Let me read it again. Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, "How, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. We'll stop there for now. I want you to notice in this passage the repeated emphasis on the word of the Lord, on what the Lord said. The dynamic here in this text is that dynamic of promise. God promises, God speaks, God says certain things to Abraham. And God makes, in this passage, three basic promises to Abraham. Number one, that he will have descendants, and that these descendants will be God's people. Number two, that these descendants will possess a land, and that that land will be God's place. And number three, that they will live under God's rule. In fact, he says they will be servants under the rule of another nation, but God himself will bring them out and set them free so that they can live under his rule. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. That's the essence of the promise God makes to Abraham. That should sound familiar. It's the Garden of Eden recapitulated. It's God saying, here's what humanity was made for, and I'm going to bring it to fruition through you, Abraham. And all Abraham is asked to do is to believe that promise. Now, to be fair, he has a lot of reasons to not believe. 
He has no child. He has no land. And so there's a lot of things working against these promises being fulfilled. But what Abraham is asked to do, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, is to believe the promise of God and take God at his word. And guess what? That's how grace works. God makes promises. We, his people, believe his promises. We count them as true. We take God at his word and we trust him to do what he says. That's how grace works. God promises to do things and God's people say, I will take you at your word. I believe that you will do that. In fact, Genesis 15 verse 6, one of the most important verses in all the Bible says, Abraham believed God. That's the essence of what Abraham did. He took God at his word. The Australian biblical scholar Graham Goldsworthy says this, The call and covenanting of Abraham was an act of grace. The descendants of Abraham were promised the kingdom by grace. The mighty acts of God in Egypt were performed because of the promise to Abraham. The Exodus event becomes a model of salvation by grace. Its goal being the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. That last sentence is especially important, the last two sentences. Exodus is possibly the most important book in the entire Bible. Because the entire event of the Exodus, God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt and delivering them, that whole thing is an acted out parable of what grace is. God, in undeserved kindness, setting his people free from bondage and bringing them back so that they are once again God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's a picture of what salvation is, what deliverance is, what redemption is, what God is ultimately up to in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What is he doing? He's doing what he did in the Exodus, bringing his people out of bondage setting them free, bringing them back to himself. The kingdom of God, friends, is a kingdom of grace. This is how God's kingdom works. This is God's way of doing things in the world. It is not human effort, not human striving, not human performance, but entirely grace and promise and blessing. So, For the rest of our time together, I just want to explore some of the implications of that. If the kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace, what does that mean? How does that change things? What implications does does that have for our lives and for our relationships? So I want to draw out three implications. There are probably hundreds, but I want to talk about three. Here's the first one. Grace creates openness. Grace creates openness. The kingdom of God, friends, is a wide open kingdom. It's freely offered to anyone who wants to get in on it. This kingdom is available to any who will come to God in faith It has no boundaries. There are no exclusions. It has no blackout dates. There's no criteria that you have to meet to get in. It is totally open and available to whoever will 
come. There are no obstacles you, can over, you have to overcome to enter it. There are no rules you have to follow or criteria you have to meet. In fact, the only thing that can keep you out of the kingdom of God is your own stubborn self-will. And I want you to think about how different that kind of openness, that kind of wide open invitation is from everything else we experience in life. Like anywhere else you want to go, almost any other room you want to get into, you have to meet some criteria, right? Like you can't even go to shop at Costco on your way home unless you have a membership card. There's a person at the door saying, let me see your membership card. You can't get into the store unless you have that. Or to be even more general, there's rarely a business you can go to in our city right now that you can walk into without what? A mask, right? There's something, there's always something you have to do, some criteria you have to meet. Have you, have you had that experience like I do like every other day where you leave the mask in the car, you get up to the door, you're like, darn it, I gotta turn around, go back to the car, get my mask because I forgot it again, right? Always forgetting this. Despite the fact that we've been living this way for a year, you'd think like we would just carry seven masks around in our pockets so we just have one when we need one. But apparently I can't remember to do that, right? Every place you go in life, there's some criteria you have to meet to get in the room, to get in the door, to be welcomed in. The kingdom of God is not that way. Grace creates openness. God has thrown the doors of his kingdom wide open to whosoever will come. Yeah, that's good news. And listen, here's what that creates in the people of God. What that means is that when God reigns in us, when the kingdom of God comes in our lives, then we are freed from our hiding and our self-protection and our defensiveness and our guardedness. We become more open toward God and toward one another. As the kingdom of God comes in us, it opens us up in love and generosity and hospitality and grace toward one another. The more the kingdom of God comes in our lives, the more it works against our tendency to be defensive and self-protective and closed and guarded. It makes us an open people. Where the kingdom of God is, there is honesty. There is transparency. There is free confession and forgiveness. There is hospitality that opens hearts and homes and tables to those outside of our normal sphere of influence. The grace of God, when it comes in us, opens us up. And so what that means is that for each of us, the more the kingdom of God comes in our lives, the more we become open and hospitable people. The more we move toward others, the more we seek to open our lives up to being really known by other people, which is different from how we generally relate, right? Because in a world of performance, in a world where the people around you might be competitors for the same job, for the same scholarship, for the same opportunity, you better not let them too close in because you might have to step on them to get where you want to go, right? In a world of performance, you can't be open. But the kingdom of God is a kingdom of radical openness. And as the kingdom of God comes in your life, it begins to open you up in free, loving, gracious generosity toward others. Grace creates openness. So one great question for us to ask as we think about what does it mean for the kingdom of God to come in us and on earth as it is in heaven is just this. Do I sense myself becoming more and more 
open, a little less guarded, a little less closed, a little less defensive? Do I sense God by his grace making me freer, more transparent, more honest, more willing to be known? If you see that progress, even incrementally in your life, it's just a little taste of what grace brings to the equation. Grace creates openness. Here's the second implication. Grace creates freedom. Now, there are probably a hundred different ways we could talk about the freedom that grace brings in our lives. But here's one in particular that I want to drive home to you. We spend our lives comparing ourselves to one another. Am I as intelligent as that person, as competent as that person, as beautiful as that person? Do I have the skills that person has? Do I measure up in my own mind to what I think that person is? We spend all of our lives comparing ourselves to others and measuring ourselves against others. This is what we're taught to do from our earliest days. And as I just said, in a world where performance matters, do you know who we're always performing against? Other people. So we're always comparing ourselves to someone else in the room and saying, well, I mean, do I have what they have? Am I as good as they are? Do I have the relationships and the approval and the success and the affluence and the respect that they have? And if not, why not? And how do I become more like them? Welcome to our lives, right? I just, I just narrated your inner dialogue and mine as well. But listen, Grace sets us free from all that because in the kingdom of God, it's not about measuring up. In the kingdom of God, guess what? You get welcomed in as you, not as someone else and not as a better version of you. Like you're, you're welcomed in as you by the grace of God and that changes everything. You can be secure and settled and confident in God's love for you. Because it's all by grace. You don't have to measure up. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to meet a criteria. There's not a version of you God wishes you would become before he will let you into his kingdom. In the kingdom of God, under his rule and reign, you are freed to be who you actually are. And listen to me, in a way better way than a self-centered, you just be you, live your truth kind of a way. I mean, you're free to be you in the fullest and most beautiful and life-giving way possible. Not in a way that steps on other people and says, I don't care what they think, I'm just going to be me. But in a way that says, I reflect the image and glory of God in a unique way that only I can because I'm made in his image. And whatever that is, I want it to come to life for the good of his people, and of the world. Let me read you a quote from Herman Bovink. I was reading Herman Bovink with the elders recently, and they were like, does this mean that there's going to be a Herman Bovink quote in the sermon this Sunday? Now you know the answer. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of free personalities where each personality has reached its full development. But it is a kingdom of free personalities who do not live separated from each other like individuals, but who together constitute a kingdom and are bound to each other in the most complete and purest community. There, the most glorious and purest unity reigns among the most incalculable diversity. The kingdom of God is the highest, 
the most perfect community because it guarantees to each one's personality the most completely well-rounded and richest development. Doesn't that sound like an amazing kingdom? What that means is in the kingdom of God, you don't become some generic version of humanity. You become the best and fullest, most sanctified and glorious version of you that there could possibly be. That's amazing. And in the midst of becoming that, you also become part of a community that is incalculably, incalculably diverse and yet also deeply united. I mean, that's, that's what the world is longing for, isn't it? Later on, I didn't quote the section, but later on, Bobbing says, actually, the kingdom of God is the thing that individualism and socialism are both trying to give you but can't. Individualism loses the community for the sake of the individual, and socialism loses the individual for the sake of the community. Nothing can hold them together except the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace, and grace creates freedom. Friends, in the kingdom of God, you become free to be the most beautiful version of you that there is. Because God made you to be that way. Here's the third implication. Grace creates openness, creates freedom. Finally, grace creates obligation. Grace creates obligation. See, the logic of performance works like this. You obey so that God will love you. The logic of performance is you follow these rules, subscribe to this religion, do this thing, go to this church, follow these rituals and liturgies, be part of this community. You do this so that God will love you. But the logic of grace works like this. Because God has already loved you when you were unlovable, now you must obey. Grace creates obligation. It's the free, generous, undeserved love of God that creates for us the obligation to lay down our lives in gratitude and service to the one who has loved us. And what that means is this. It means grace is actually kind of threatening because it takes away our negotiating power, right? If we brought nothing to the table, then guess what? We've got nothing to negotiate with. Being a car guy, that also means I've bought and sold lots of cars. And you know what the nature of buying and selling cars is? Negotiation. I have something you want, a car. You have something I want, money. And we're just going to negotiate about how much money you're going to give me before I'm going to give you this car or vice versa, right? And so it's all about negotiation. What do I have? How much of what I have am I willing to give so that you'll give up what you have so that I can get it? And listen, because we live in a world that's full of those kinds of negotiations, we tend to relate to God that same way. God, here's what I'm willing to give you, but here's what I'm demanding that you give me before I'm willing to give that up. So I'll give you most of my life, most of my uh, obedience, most of my possessions, and most of whatever, but here's what I want from you. Do this for me. Come through for me in this way. And then what happens is when God doesn't come through for us in the way we want it, then we sort of, sort of feel like we can sort of back out on negotiation, right? But friends, because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace, here's what that means. There's no limit to what God can demand of us. You know why? Because we didn't bring anything into it in the first place. 
There was no negotiation, so we don't get to negotiate. God freely loved us and brought us into his kingdom by grace, and therefore, he gets to demand everything. You don't get to say, well, here's what you can have, and here's what you can't have. Here's what I will do, and here's what I won't do. God says, I've loved you fully and entirely, and now here's what I expect of you. Listen, the Ten Commandments make this abundantly clear. I told you that the Exodus is the foundation story of all of Scripture. The beginning of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Listen to how the Ten Commandments begin. This is the part you usually skip over because what you really want to do is get to the Ten Commandments and figure out which one are you breaking, okay? But here's how they begin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Grace comes before obligation. Grace creates obligation. Hey, I brought you out of slavery. I've set you free and delivered you. Therefore, don't worship other gods. There's not another God that has saved you. There's not another God who has delivered you. The logic of the Ten Commandments is grounded in grace. The church's best theology, friends, is often reflected in her hymns. And one of the most beloved hymns in the church for the last three centuries has been Isaac Watts' famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, written in 1707. In that hymn, we sing these famous lines. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Do you know why we love that hymn? Because Isaac Watts got it right. Love that amazing, that divine, demands my soul, my life, everything I have. It's the love and kindness and grace of God that is the foundation of God's kingdom. And that creates for us the invitation and the demand to lay everything down and follow him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the freeness of your grace, for the glory of your kingdom, and the fact that the currency of your kingdom is entirely upside down from everything else we've learned. And so we acknowledge that entering your kingdom and learning to live in your kingdom can be a disorienting experience because we have to relearn. How do we live in grace? So thank you, Jesus, that you came to die and rise from the dead so that we could be welcomed into this kingdom. And thank you, Father, that you accept us and welcome us, not based on whether we've figured out grace, but just based on grace. So would you this morning renew us in joy and in affection and in gratitude for your kindness? And would you awaken in us a sense of your love so amazing, so divine, that it demands my life, my soul, my all for our good and your glory. Amen.